Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Um, This is a very special edition of Brussels Sprouts Live. We're recording as part of the CNAS annual conference. So in addition to Jim and me peppering our guests with our usual questions, uh, we'll also leave ample time at the end for our audience to join the podcast and ask their own questions on air. So it should be a lot of fun. Uh, And in terms of our topic, uh, I think it's almost impossible for us to be talking about anything other uh, than the upcoming summits that have overtaken uh, the transatlantic community. So we're keeping our focus on President Biden's trip to Europe. Uh, It's his first overseas trip as president. And as we all know, he's attending on Friday uh, the G7 in Cornwall in the UK. They'll head to Brussels for the NATO and the US-EU summits, and then is traveling to Geneva to meet with Vladimir Putin. Um, As we have all been learning and recognizing, there's really an incredible amount of substance on the table at all of these summits, um, including what the administration has termed the three Cs. So we're hearing a lot of conversation about COVID, climate, and China. Um, But there's also, you know, obviously Russia, there's technology, trade and regulatory issues, And I think as a transatlantic community, we're all really looking to these summits um, for signs about the tone uh, and the contours of transatlantic relations going forward. And so to help us make sense of all of that, we have put together really an incredible group uh, to discuss the summits. I want to welcome Constanza Steltzenmuller, Steve Erlanger, Susan Glasser, and Anne Guerin. Um, and as I always do, I just want to do very quick introductions of each of them. So Constanza is an expert on German, European, and transatlantic foreign and security policy and strategy. Uh, she's the inaugural holder of the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations in the Center on the U- United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. Um, we're also happy to have Susan Glasser, who's staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes a weekly column on life in Washington. Uh, We also have with us Steve Erlanger, who's the chief diplomatic correspondent in Europe for the New York Times. And joining us from the tarmac in Cornwall, uh, we have Anne Guerin, who's a White House correspondent from the Washington Post. So, wow, what an amazing group um, to talk about the summits. Uh, Welcome to all of you. Um, Anne, since you are, or maybe you've made your way off the tarmac by now, but you are literally on the ground in Cornwall as part of the press pool that's traveling for the summits. And so kind of hot off the press from the front lines, I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about, and this is Jim's phrase that I'm adopting here, the mood music Jim likes to talk about. Um, What's the mood uh, ahead of the summits, and is it the same music that's playing on both sides of the Atlantic? I mean, would you say we're on the same page going into this, or, or are we kind of both listening to our to our own our own songs on each side? I think yes. In most cases, uh, the United States is on the same page uh, as the European allies, whom uh, President Biden will see in the first several days of of this of these summits, starting here in Cornwall with the G7. Uh, and he will also see uh, Boris Johnson, Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson, separately from uh, the, the Cornwall uh, UK uh, hosted G7. Um, there are very few issues uh, be- between the US and Britain at this point that are, are contentious. There are one or two. Um, Ireland, Northern Ireland is probably top of that list. Uh, in uh, Brussels, where he goes next, uh, 
there are a few issues at NATO. Um, there's a little bit of hurt feelings on, on the part of, of some of the NATO members over the way the Afghanistan withdrawal was handled. Uh, and of course, there's the ongoing issue of Turkey uh, and the president will meet on the sidelines of the NATO meeting with uh, President Erdogan. That is probably his first difficult meeting of, of, of these, this set of, of issues. Uh, the US-EU meeting, uh, not terribly contentious, but uh, certainly there are hurt feelings among uh, some EU nations that the uh, tariffs haven't been dropped yet, uh, which is uh, something that many nations expected would have happened long before now uh, under Joe Biden. And then he goes on to really what is kind of the main event of, of, of the whole week, which is the Putin summit in Geneva. And that is uh, definitely going to be contentious. Uh, and it bears mention that this meeting comes at Biden's invitation. Uh, and so he actually wants to sit down and have this set of difficult conversations uh, with President Putin. Both sides are lowering their expectations for what might come out of it, uh, but it's just interesting and important that it will happen at all. Wonderful, thanks, Anne. And Steve, maybe we can ask you the same question. You just had a really fantastic piece in the New York Times uh, ahead of the summits. And so for maybe people who didn't catch that, kind of your thoughts on what the mood music is um, at, in advance of the summits. It's going to be a very gentle waltz. I mean, the Europeans are very happy to have Biden here. Biden is a true transatlanticist. He's very fond. He understands Europe, first of all. Europeans will see this as a kind of God, a man who likes us, who sees us as allies, who wants our help, who doesn't think we're enemies, who doesn't think we're out to screw America. Uh, who believes in NATO, believes in Article 5. Now, there are, of course, issues. I mean, Biden will have a price tag. The price tag is likely to be China. That's the obsession now. You know, we have to have an enemy. That enemy turns out to be China. So everybody has to have an enemy out of China. And the Europeans are wary. They're wary because they actually don't feel a peer rivalry with China. Their economies work a lot with China. As, as they do with Russia. And as much as they love Biden, they do worry that America has changed and that Biden is an intermezzo between two very different kinds of presidents. They worry about another America firster after Biden. They worry the midterms in 17 months will mean Biden will lose control of Congress. Um, but at the same time, Biden will argue to them, and I think pretty intelligently, that you need to help me because if you don't help me, you're going to make sure you get your worst fears in four years' time. So I think that's a good argument, um, and we'll see. So generally, I don't expect a lot of contention. There'll be a lot of kissing and hugging, even from a, a distance, um, and people Biden will at least have sequenced all these meetings so that he goes to Geneva to meet Putin, have, you know, having talked to all the Western and even Asian allies so he can present a sort of united front. That's uh, Steve. Thank you very much for that. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm in a total agreement and I want to build on what you just said. Uh, with Susan, uh, if you don't mind, I mean, just looking at this from the Washington political perspective, you know, this idea that, um, you know, you know, a little bit after the 100 days has passed, there is so much happening in Washington right now on the Hill. Uh, there is so much riding on this domestic agenda. 
then suddenly for the American president to pick up and go to Europe when he's been talking about China and including the package that has just been um, coming out of the hill on China. And all of a sudden he's going to Europe. He's making a number of very important meetings there, summits there. Um, if this is a, how does this look from a Washington political perspective of, um, you know, particularly if you're a European looking over at, as Steve said, the possibility that the president, uh, we might see someone very different uh, a few years from now who won't be going to Europe the way this president is. How does this trip fit into the, the Washington political perspective as you see it? You know, thank you so much, Jim. And I, I think Steve's point is an excellent one in that uh, the uncertainty about uh, whether Trumpism remains a kind of dominant narrative and Biden is a sort of welcome, uh, you know, intermission, but perhaps a misleading one. In some ways, the timing of this trip may reinforce rather than undercut that narrative because uh, you just had right in the lead up to this, you did have this rare bipartisan uh, Bill, as you pointed out, Jim, uh, just yesterday, both Democratic and Republican senators voting on essentially an industrial policy uh, series of investments that are meant to counter China. At the same time, you know, the bigger political news right now, of course, is this issue with, um, you know, the Senate just uh, in the immediate run up to Biden's trip, uh, rejecting a bipartisan January 6th commission, uh, you know, Congress can't even agree to investigate an attack on itself. And, you know, uh, uh, for European leaders, they may not be following the ins and outs of the infrastructure negotiations, but this is not a complicated thing. It shall tells them in a very, very loud way uh, that the dysfunction, gridlock, and political polarization that gave rise to Trump in the first place uh, not only has not gone away, but that Republicans, given the opportunity to make a break from Trump, uh, at least the elected Republicans on Capitol Hill have chosen to double down on conspiracy theories, lies and denialism in a way that I think is uh, undercutting for Biden and the message that we need to make democracy work. And I think in the same way, the collapse of the uh, infrastructure talks that he was holding with a Republican senator from West Virginia, Shelley, uh, more capito. She was dele delegated by the Republican leadership to have those talks, never moved in a significant way on the key issue of how it would be paid for. And so uh, while some other talks will now be started with a more bipartisan group of senators, 10 uh, Democrats and 10 Republicans, uh, the truth of the matter is that Biden is coming at a very uncertain moment in terms of this very sweeping legislative agenda that he's promised and and because he and his advisors have been so explicit at making a linkage between uh foreign policy and domestic policy you know that's the message that you hear from jake sullivan the national security advisor that uh essentially that our foreign policy begins at home that our foreign policy is about showing the world that democracy can work and so i think i you know it, it's a great line and i think it does reflect an awareness on the part of biden and democrats who spent the last four years in a very stressful you know kind of wilderness recognizing uh, that there was too big a gap uh, between, uh, you know, what the foreign policy establishment, in some ways of both parties thought, and what Americans were willing to support. And they had to reconnect the chain between the United States and what happens internally and why we're present in the rest of the world. However, I think it all, unfortunately has also raised expectations. It's not enough 
to make these sweeping phrases. I'll, I'll leave you with this, but I just was looking at, uh, you know, a quote from from Jake Sullivan uh, when he was asked, well, what is this moment about? What are these summits about? Okay, so this is the modest statement that they're opening with here, folks. He said, it's to rally the world's democracies to challenge, to tackle the great challenges of our time. Now, that is a pretty sweeping mission statement for what, by all accounts, is actually going to be a pretty modest set of uh, get-to-know-you meetings. That's fantastic, Susan. And I, I want to come back to you on Putin. I want to, while you're still here, I want to get um, your thoughts on the Putin-Biden summit. But really quick, Constanza, because I, I, I'm sure you're uh, eager to jump in at this point too. But along these same lines, I mean, do you think the mood music is the same uh, in Europe? I mean, I think we're hearing also quite a lot about how Europe needs to plan for a scenario in which the, no, the United States no longer regards Europe as its core, as a core American interest. And so it, are, are you getting that kind of sense from the European side of, of things or kind of how would you characterize where you think Europe's head is going into these summits? Well, obviously, Europe has 27 heads, and then there are the Brits, and I think one would still have to argue that the Turks are at least geographically half in Europe. So um, I, I would hate to generalize as a German, that's not taken kindly by others. But um, where are we? I think there is a sort of mixture of caution and enthusiasm. Uh, enthusiasm because we all have PTSD uh, from four years of Trump. Um, and the caution, because we see the that things aren't over here. I'm, of course, speaking to you from Washington, D.C., where I live. Um, and there's, as Susan just outlined, still very much a sense that there is an ongoing battle for the heart and soul of American democracy, which is as yet undecided and which is existential, which for Europeans, frankly, is quite terrifying. Um, and that is, you know, at that that is there's a sense that the, the fate of, of America as a leader in the international um, community still hangs in the balance. Um, that said, um, I entirely agree that, that we have something to contribute to whether that happens or not. And I'm not sure that that's fully understood in, in Europe. In other words, we, we can, by behaving in ways that are actually in our own interests, help the Biden administration succeed. I mean, obviously there are things that we disagree on and there are those, uh, I think the most significant disagreements are on the, uh, on, on the appropriate China policy, not on, not on whether uh, China is a challenger and an adversary. There the positions have hardened considerably, but there seems to be a fear that um, America will militarize this, this conflict and will ask too much of Europeans who are wildly exposed to the European, uh, to the Chinese economy, Germany, of course, uh, 90% is the most, one of the most open economies in the world. Uh, but there's also a sense maybe that there's a little bit of, um, you know, American exaggeration there because America too is exposed to the Chinese economy. American finance and hedge funds are exposed to the Chinese economy. Um, what I would, if I may editorialize for a second, what I would like to see is, is a slightly more constructive and enthusiastic attitude on the European side, not hanging back and saying, so what have you, you know, what is it now? Um, but <laughs> 
why is he Stephen nothing? Uh, he knows this. Um, but a okay, we see, we see. You have issues. We have issues. We share a lot of concerns. What can we do? We have very little time. We may, we may not be able to implement all this because we have German elections in September and French elections in the spring. But we damn well are going to we're going to try because we we understand the urgency of this. And here are our best ideas. Let's talk. Yeah, that's what I would like to see, and I think I'm not seeing, and that concerns me greatly. Wonderful, and I want to remind audience to, if you have questions for our guests, um, please submit them. And Susan, I just wanted to catch you before you have to race off to uh, an interview more important than Brussels sprouts, but um, I want to get at the Putin meeting. Um, and Steve, <laughs> Steve raised the point or made the point about how these summits are stacked so that, you know, obviously the United States is meeting with allies and partners before it heads into its meeting with President Putin. Um, you know, I think Jake Sullivan has said something along the lines that like then, you know, going into the meeting with Putin that we have like the wind at our back where we're going into these meetings from a position of strength. And I just wonder kind of what you think about that. And, you know, I would note, you know, since the summit was announced, we have seen very little goodwill from President Putin from the Kremlin, um, whether it's been kind of continued ransomware attacks or the backing of Lukashenko after his outrageous um, downing or not downing, but um, hijacking of the plane in Europe, um, whether it's his sustained attacks on Russian opposition. So there hasn't, he hasn't shown a whole lot of kind of eagerness, I would say, to engage with President Biden. So um, I guess I want to ask you what you think Putin's mindset is coming into this summit. Like what, what is his headspace as he comes to this summit? And if you were President Putin, what is it that you would be looking to get out of the meeting with Biden? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not sure I can I can even begin to uh, put myself uh, in Vladimir Putin's brain. Um, but you know, on some level, we don't need to. Uh, you know, he, this is Biden. Joe Biden is his fifth United States president. Okay, he knows the drill, and. I think that you're absolutely right. And I'm so glad you mentioned uh, the Belarus skyjacking, which is just an outrageous uh, uh, infringement on the world order. Uh, and frankly, I, I haven't heard enough noise about that uh, uh, from Europeans. I mean, my God, this is, I can't think of something that more directly affects them. I know they acted quickly and imposed sanctions, but you know, I know there's a lot on the world's agenda. And frankly, these summit meetings are set pieces. Uh, and, you know, the G7 and NATO and the EU summit, you know, as you pointed out, we're talking about the three C's. We're talking about China, COVID, climate. These are big, long-term existential uh, questions of the kind of stuff that, you know, communiques are written about and negotiated over. But uh, it seems to me that you've got some crises that are pretty urgent uh, that, don't necessarily always register as as urgent. And in that sense, the timing seems terrible. There's a lot of skepticism, of course, here in Washington uh, about why it is that Biden felt the need uh, to elevate Putin, uh, uh, as we all know now, because again, it's his fifth US president. Uh, Vladimir Putin likes to be elevated on the world stage. It's a playbook that he's gone back to again and again and again. Uh, when he is challenged at home as he is right now. And that, I think, is an important thing to understand in terms of his mindset going into it. Uh, but also, he thinks that Biden and the United States is weakened. He thinks that he's succeeding. And I think that that is something that doesn't get enough attention uh, in Washington or other uh, you know, European capitals. Uh, the bottom line is that um, 
Right now, uh, it looks to Vladimir Putin like he sent 100,000 troops to the border with Ukraine. And guess what? Uh, it worked. And he got Joe Biden to pay attention to him after months of this uh, annoying from Putin's perspective, uh, you know, uh, uh, China, China, China talk from the new administration. All of a sudden, it's Russia, not China, that gets a first summit. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin, we're not talking about Alexei Navalny. And we're not talking about the fact that there's enormous fatigue inside Russia uh, with Putin's tenure uh, and a sense that he is as on a weaker position internally as he has been throughout his uh, 20 years plus in power. And, you know, this again is a playbook that uh, Putin has gone to frequently. And to the point about what kind of a hand does Joe Biden really bring to this conversation? I think, uh, you know, it's the weakness of American democracy and not its strength. Uh, arguably, that is on display at the moment. Uh, right before I came on here, I was looking at some numbers uh, spotlighted this morning uh, in Slate out of a, the latest series of polls. 53% of Republicans, 53% of Republicans believe that Donald Trump is, quote, the true president of the United States right now. So, folks, how does that square with Joe Biden coming to Europe and telling everybody, hey, good news, I'm here. Uh, now the world's democracies are going to unite and show those bad boy autocrats uh, who is in charge. I mean, come on. you know. And so I understand it. I'm very sympathetic. I would like that to be true, uh, as I imagine you know, many of the, the listeners uh, would like that statement to be true. But it strikes me as very aspirational. And Putin certainly uh, is aware of uh, this context when he's having this meeting this week. Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Jim. Uh, no, please go ahead. I mean, that's a tremendous statement. Uh, and I was going to ask Steve, as a longtime observer of, of summits and American presidents coming to Europe, has we, have we ever seen this kind of, of, of um, audience awaiting an American president going to NATO, going to Europe for summits? What Susan just said is very powerful. And I'm trying to think back to other times where an American president might have been going to to NATO and to Europe with the same kind of weak hand in some ways, politically, certainly, that he's got to play there? Um, it's a very good question. I, I think it's not, well, the Putin question, let's put aside for a, just half a second. I think Biden comes to Europe and NATO with a pretty strong hand, I would say, right? I mean, NATO has raised its deterrence, partly under Donald Trump, I mean, it is going to move ahead to authorize a study to, to renew its strategic plan, which 10 years ago, 11 years ago, saw Russia as a partner and barely mentioned China. So the world has changed, NATO will change with it. It's more interested in how you deter this Russia, how you deter this China than it's ever been. So I think that's fine. Now, Putin, you know, I think we exaggerate the danger Putin presents to the rest of the world. Now, what he does at home, we can't really do much about. But I think I think Biden's going to hear going to talk a lot about Navalny, and he's going to talk a lot about Lukashenko, and he wants a strategic stability with Russia if he can get it. He wants to park Russia because he's got other things that he wants to do, and if that means 
patting Putin on the head, that's okay. Now, Putin will play a sort of whataboutism game, there's no question. Um, but, you know, when it comes to something like Belarus, which breaks my heart, I mean, what are our tools really? I mean, let's be honest, what are we going to do? Um, so I think, you know, we, we also want to be careful not to fall into 1956 and Hungary and pretend we're going to do more for these people than we're actually prepared to do. I think to cordon off Putin, uh, to talk reasonably tough to him, um, to tell him we want more arms control, we want to control space, we want to talk a little bit about climate, we want to deal with you on things we can deal with you, and basically for the rest, we're going to push you back. So, I, you know, Susan's right. I mean, Biden comes with a sense, and you see it in the polls, that democracies in retreat, people are unhappy with their institutions, the COVID thing has undermined faith in, in all sorts of governments that at least have democratic outlets. Uh, Germany has put a do not disturb sign until September on its door, and everyone's worried about France, right? Because there's a real worry Macron's gonna come in third in the first round. So, I mean, there's things to play for, um, and Putin is on the side of those things. Um, now, I hope I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but um, I don't, I, mean, I know the Putin thing matters a lot at home and there's gonna be a lot of criticism of why Trump, you know, why he's being given this gift by Biden, which is fair enough, particularly from the Democratic Party, let alone the Republicans. But I think in the broader sense of international relations, there's nothing wrong with talking to Vladimir Putin if the dialogue is carefully constructed. I'm gonna to come to Constanza in a minute on the NATO summit. She had an incredible interview with um, the Secretary General, but Susan, can I slide in one more question before you go? Do you have like 30 seconds? Yeah, okay. What would, you, what, what would a successful summit with Putin look like? Like how, how would you, for, for Biden? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I was interested uh, to see their formulation that the reason for the summit was that they were looking to have a more, quote, stable and predictable relationship with Russia. Uh, I understand the impulse. But to me, again, there were just a little bit of a warning sign there because Vladimir Putin's brand is unpredictability. Uh, and uh, he spent 20 years in office. And, uh, you know, it's like the, the bad boyfriend theory. You know, he's not going to change now. Uh, and you're not going to turn uh, Vladimir Putin into a stable, uh, predictable uh, problem in a box. And uh, I think that is the fervent hope uh, of the team. So, you know, again, uh, they've done a good job, I, aside from that, in ratcheting down expectations. Uh, and I should say the final thing that we haven't really mentioned here uh, is that, you know, most people don't look at it in such granular terms that, that we're talking about it right now. Uh, the bottom line is for most Americans, certainly, uh, Joe Biden is going to look like a winner because he's not going to be sucking up to Vladimir Putin uh, and uh, dismissing his own intelligence agencies and, uh, uh, you know, outraging both Democrats and Republicans uh, by appearing to praise an autocrat more than his don't own Democratic allies. So in that big picture sense, both halves of this eight day foreign trip uh Biden is almost guaranteed to jump over the low hurdle that Donald Trump has left for him. And that's why the political risks, I think, are relatively low 
for Joe Biden. And the payoff is high because, uh, you know, when it comes to Russia, uh, you know, just looking at, at Putin and being skeptical isn't a win for American democracy after four years of losing. Great. Okay, Susan, I know you have to jump. Um, Thank thanks so much for joining us. Good to yeah. see you, friends. <laughs> All right. See, see you soon. Okay, Constanza, um, kind of coming back, we'll come back now to maybe more of the little mid sure. as I think many people are doing, jumping straight over the European summits into Andrea, the Russia. I have a lot to say of what's just been said about Belarus and Russia. Take, take it away. Okay, thank you. For one, I want to say that, and I'm sorry that Susan isn't here to, to, to hear me, uh, I want to say that I disagree with her on, on the supposed inadequacy of European reactions. The Europeans, including the Germans, were horrified were, were, and reacted um, with, I, I thought, enormous speed and severity. Um, very unusually by European standards. And I would point out to you that not even the Hungarians tried to impose a veto on this, which is these days also unusual. The Hungarians like to veto stuff that we do. Firstly. Secondly, there was a noticeable time lag between the reactions of the Europeans and the White House. The White House was clearly taken aback by the speed and forcefulness of the European reaction, in my view. And that was noticed. That is registered in, in Beijing and it's registered in Moscow. It's the kind of thing where I would argue there shouldn't be a ray of light between us. And I think one of the topics of this week needs to be, let's not have that happen again. Yeah. I will also point out to you that in terms of staffing and in terms of the priorities given to uh, the, the topic of Russia and Europe, um, Russia and Europe are clearly, you know, treated as second tier priorities by this, by the Biden White House, very obviously. And I think that that's a mistake for the simple reason that in a competition with China, that will not just be a military one, but will centrally be playing out on the fields of economy and technology. The power assets that the European Union can bring to bear are not just, you know, legitimizing add-ons like European boutique military capabilities would be in the case of the military conflict. They are essential. Not to have the European Union on your side in an economic competition where the Chinese are weaponizing interdependence, I think would be debilita debilitating for the United States. And therefore, the cohesion of Europe, which is what both the Chinese and the, and the, and the Russians are trying to undermine, is in my view of essential strategic importance for this White House. And it's not clear to me that the White House has understood this. Certainly its pronouncements do not reflect that. And I think that's a mistake. It's also the argument where we Europeans need to do more and to make sure that we are more cohesive than we are. Absolutely, I mean, you know, you, you know me, I'm the last one to say, you know, we you know, should wait for the Americans to do stuff uh, or tell us what to do. But that's a, that's a really, really important point. And, and then finally, if the Russians for, you know, have 100,000 troops marching up and down uh, the Ukrainian border, if the Russians build hypersonic missiles, if the German intelligence chiefs, as they did last week, say in a public, in a, in a public press conference that the Russians and the Chinese are interfering in the German political space uh, in a, to a degree not seen since the Cold War, that's serious. And I will also say to you, Germany is the Archimedean point where you apply the lever if you want to 
break up European political cohesion. We are, we are the, the crucible these days of European cohesion and to attack us is to attack all of Europe. And that is counter to American first order strategic interests in my view. Could I jump into that, Constanza? I, I agree completely with what you're saying, and uh, and this is for you. I don't know if you're able to, if you've heard a lot of the discussion just a few minutes ago. Uh, it's just been in incredibly rich and deep. And I want your perspective on where you think into the White House. Where do you think the White House, uh, that their view in terms of the transatlantic relationship, in terms of of some of the things that Constanza talked about? Are you picking up as well from your beat? Uh, that when it comes to transatlantic, when it comes to Europe, that it, there's a lot of talk, and, and that's kind of it. There's no ambassador to NATO. There's no ambassador to the EU. Uh, there's there's to Berlin the 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 Archimedes point that Constanza talked about. There's no, you know, you get a feeling that there's a lot of talk, but there certainly isn't a lot of 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 deep action or or you know we'll see but the, the number of people in the in the administration both of the pentagon and the state department no assistant secretary of state for europe no what signals are you picking up at the white house in terms of their interest uh in europe I actually, I agree uh, with Constanza that uh, the, the White House reacted uh, with, a, with a, a bit of shock and then uh, speed after the uh, European reaction on uh, the, the Belarus plane. Um, there's quite a lot of noise behind me. I'm sorry about that. I'm on a bus. Um, so <laughs> You're being heroic. I know, it's a little, it's, it's kind of veritas here. I've already been tested, so, you know, I got that under my belt. Uh, on the wider question of uh, what the White House priorities are, um, well, first of all, there aren't any ambassadors to anywhere, so Europe shouldn't feel left out. Um, the White House has been extraordinarily slow in naming political ambassadors, that, and frankly, not that fast in, in moving on uh, State Department career ambassadors, for that matter. The first slate of Biden's uh, State Department crew uh, is having hearings this week. Um, it's June. So, uh, you know, and obviously people usually move around in the summer. So they are, they're not moving fast on that. Um, there's a, a, a chosen nominee for the, the top Europe job at state, but that person hasn't taken uh, her post yet. They are not moving fast on that. That should not signify, I think, you know, people shouldn't take that too personally. Um, the the larger question i think is that uh, the strategy was to hug europe and the alliances as close as they possibly could right at the beginning so they could go on and do other things it's not that europe doesn't matter it's that they wanted to get it out of the way uh make, make it very clear that uh this was a a restoration of of normal uh, operations uh but not spend a lot of time on it uh, you know, the old wounds of pivot to Asia are still there. This White House doesn't use that term, uh, but they, they speak very freely about their view that, um, in the words of Kurt Campbell, the future is in Asia. 
21st century will be written in Asia. Um, that is a nice way of saying it ain't going to be written in Europe and the Middle East, but we want you all on our team when we go trying to do big things in Asia. Yeah, really, oh, this is just such a, a fantastic conversation. Maybe if we zoom in a little bit on the NATO piece in Constanza, we've got, so we have a number of questions from the audience coming on the NATO piece, but so maybe as a pivot point, Constanza, just to have you, as I mentioned at the earlier, you had a really fantastic interview with the NATO Secretary General. Um, and for those of you who haven't seen it, you know, go check it out on the Brookings website. But if you're kind of reflecting on that interview, um, was there anything that you heard that was surprising? I mean, I think we have a good sense of what the business is going to be. You know, we're, they're going to go in and they're going to talk about deterrence and defense and they're going to talk about NATO resilience and they'll talk cyber and partnerships. And there's a kind of a whole checklist of issues that we know are on the agenda. But kind of, ref, you know, as you reflect on that interview, anything surprising, anything that was concerning, uh, kind of what what jumped out at you or what stuck with you from that interview? Well, thank you, Andrea. I would say that I worked hard to get something surprising out of the Secretary General and I was foiled at every step. Um, I don't think that any of those who cover uh, NATO you know, even more closely than I do, such as Stephen, heard anything they hadn't known before. Um, I think that You know, I, th I think that Stoltenberg was a good secretary general to have during the Trump era because he didn't freak out. I mean, I heard him give that speech uh, to the two houses of Congress, and it was a very warm and genuine speech, which I think, you know, actually did a great deal at the time uh, to to bridge relations a bit. Um, that that was it was important to have him in that role. But now we. I, I think that again, I'm going to come come back to my uh, to, to my central point here, and and you know, Anne Anne was saying we shouldn't take these things personally. That that's uh, absolutely you know we uh, you know America's a superpower, we're not, but um, that's not quite what I was trying to say. What I was trying to say is that in a world that where that is characterized by both competition and interdependence. And where a lot of that competition takes place on an economic and technological plane, actually the power relationship between America and the United uh, and the America and the European Union, caveat, in as much as we're cohesive, um, is somewhat equalized. In other words, in the military relationship, we are, you know, legitimizing add-ons. We we add we add decoration by being, you know, additional numbers. And because we're democracies, but we don't add military capabilities. What we add is location and a bit of you know boutique stuff. The Brits add their intelligence um, and and that kind of thing. We Germans add you know land capabilities, whatever. But we're not really you know we're we're, we're not sort of we're not ever going to be decisive in an all-out war. But in a situation where you're not talking about war versus peace where you're talking about ongoing conflicts that go between propaganda and disinformation on the one hand and economic, the weaponization of economic dependence on the, on the other, the power relationship between America and Europe is firstly somewhat equalized. We have assets to bear, we have things to say, and we can express and argue disagreements in a somewhat more legitimate way, I would argue, than we can on, on the, in the military relationship. And finally, I would also say that it is not, you know, for all of those who advocate restraint in this town, 
I think it is actually a strategic mistake to think that America can afford to be indifferent you know, or to deprioritize the destabilization of Europe by the Russians, because that limits, hampers our capability to be supportive on the larger question of competition with China. Yeah, that's my argument. And I think that's a very, you know, that, that it's, it's a little bit complicated, but it's very real. And, and, it's, and, and I worry that that's not fully understood on both sides, just how much we need each other. Okay, I'm gonna, um, I wanna pivot to some of our audience questions. I'm gonna pick one, something that you just said, like in the military context, Europe are, is, are, you know, so to speak, add-ons and you add value in large part because uh, you're democracies, because Europe is democracies. Um, unfortunately, not all democracies, and that's taking me to my question on Turkey. And we have a question from the audience from Lily. And so I don't know who wants to jump on this, Steve or Anne, but as Turkey drifts further from being a democracy under Erdogan, will we see further drifting away from the United States and NATO allies? So, um, Steve, if you want to pick that up, and Anne, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, just quickly. I mean, insight look, into how the White House is thinking about that relationship. Yeah. I mean, Turkey is the elephant in the room in NATO. There's no question, but it also matters in defense terms. And I think we underestimate the opposition to Erdogan. Erdogan is actually weaker now than he was five or six years ago. Turkey is very divided politically, a bit like Poland. You know, we assume. Peace is running Poland. Well, you, you know, all the cities are run by the opposition. Turkey is also politically very, very divided. Now, Erdogan finds he's trying to suck up to Biden. You know, his protector in Washington is gone. He's calmed down things in the Eastern Mediterranean. I mean, which which matters quite a lot. He's he's engaged in deconfliction talks inside NATO. And I think, you, you know, I mean, Biden has going to have some strong talks with him. I know the U.S. delegation in NATO was terrified when the genocide declaration went through. And in fact, nothing happened, right? Turkey kind of swallowed it. So that's interesting. The other problem is, of course, the discussion on the S-400s. And what worries me is if we push Turkey too hard, Turkey's not going to get the F-35, which means it doesn't have a fifth-generation fighter. Do we want them to buy Sukhois? Is, is that the answer to our Turkey problem? I mean, I just throw, it's, it's a complicated question. I think there's a lot to play for in Turkey, and I think we need to be careful not to just put Erdogan in the crazy autocrat slot, even though he kind of belongs there. Yeah, I guess I would add to that that um, they, they, the White House, um, are putting him in the penalty box to, to a degree, uh, but also the fact that he's the only uh, person other than Boris Johnson and Vladimir Putin who the, the White House has, has announced Biden will meet with uh, separately, oh, well, and the Queen too, uh, you know, that, that shows you that they consider the relationship to be very important. Uh, I think there will be other bilats added this week, but they haven't announced all of those. Uh, the the genocide, the Armenian genocide issue, I think, is is instructive. Uh, this is something that Biden said on the campaign trail that he would do. He certainly is extremely familiar with the issue after uh, all those decades of of being lobbied uh, by uh, 
Nancy Pelosi and others uh, when he was in the Senate and when he was vice president. Uh, and, I, you know, it, I think it, it shows maybe more about Biden's approach than it does about their larger policy on, on, on Turkey that it quite early in the administration, he just pulled the plug on that. It's like, we're just not, this is, this is dumb. We're just not going to do this anymore. Uh, and, you know, they had paved the ground to a degree. Uh, with Erdogan by, by having said aloud previously that they were going to do it um, and then not saying anything more about it. Uh, it was not a surprise. So, you know, other than some empty threats about uh, closing down in Zurich Air Base, uh, really nothing happened. And I think uh, the administration, well, I know the administration is taking that uh, as a victory so far, but they're not going to jump up and down about it. Uh, Wonderful. Okay, we have another question from the audience from Becky Corman, um, who's asking about Afghanistan, kind of in the NATO context. And her question is, with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan coming, what effect will that have on burden sharing between NATO allies? Um, I don't know who wants to jump on that question, but maybe to talk a little bit, Constanza, if you want to say something about how that decision is being viewed um, from, from the other side of the Atlantic, and then we can talk about maybe, we can tackle this broader issue of burden sharing as well. Sure. Um, I, I think the Afghanistan withdrawal uh, was actually a case where the Europeans were genuinely wrong-footed by the decision from the White House. Um, I mean, I've been told that by credible sources. And, um, and they then sort of, you know, did a hard swallow and said, all right, we're just going to have to adapt quickly. But, you know, and, uh, you know, the, since they had gone through these wrenching, whipsawing uh, things with the Trump administration, this wasn't as bad as in the past five, four years. So you sort of just grin and swallow it and do it. And I think we are agreed on the ultimate outcome. That said, I think none of us have really sort of completely thought through what a um, you know a Taliban rampage in Afghanistan will mean for the future legitimacy of NATO, and for the future of Western intervention stabilization missions of any kind, and what it does to the 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 balance of powers in the region. I mean, I expect that that the you know the Chinese and the Indians will have, you know, have have strong interests there as well. Not at least in not least in Sort of very substantive things like rare earths, but um, you know there is there there is going to be a rippling out effect of the power shifts there that will affect us in one way or another, and not least because we have Muslim diasporas in um, in Europe for whom for whom this matters, whether we let the people who worked with us for twenty years be slaughtered by the Taliban. I think that that will have an impact on our domestic debates as well. I do want to say, because you asked me about NATO debates, that the, um, I mean, there are a lot of things that I think won't come up at the, the NATO summit, but that uh, are, I think, of some concern for us. And I would just want to raise to you the point about the, the issue of the upcoming nuclear, nuclear posture review in the United States. That has knock-on effects on, on a variety of issues. One, one is, is that there is clearly a discussion here about moving to sole purpose. That is of some concern to the European nuclear powers, the Brits and presumably also the French. It is of concern to the Eastern Europeans because it um, raises questions about extended deterrence. 
and it's of concern to all of the NATO European partners and the Germans in particular because it raises uh, issue, questions about the balance between the nuclear deterrent and the conventional deterrent. And because increasingly it looks like Germany is going to be the hub for land-based conventional deterrent in, in, in Eurasia. And that has significant, that raises questions for our budgets, the composition of our forces uh, and military mobility. And that's, you know, these are all incredibly complex questions and they're all related, but, but they are what we really need to discuss. Um, and, and so, I mean, you know, I think my sense is in the sense of experts in Europe is, you know, the meet and greet thing is lovely and the mood music is great, but we really, we have, we have very little time to deal with some extremely complex questions that if they're not properly addressed, will be exploited to our detriment by our adversaries. Boy, I agree with that so much. Uh, I uh, just sorry to jump in, Andrea, uh, but boy, I agree with that. These are really complex. We have wrestled with these behind closed doors for a few years now. That we have got to come to grips with it. And I'm hoping that the, the, the Biden team in the next year or so, as we go through the, our own reviews, nuclear posture review, but global posture and things like that, we've got to figure this out because there's a lot hanging on that in terms of what European force posture is going to look like. So it's, I agree with you completely. Yeah. And just on the broader question of burden sharing, um, Steve, kind of what do you think that that debate, that discussion is going to look like? My sense is that the Biden administration is opening, is open to talking about kind of a broader definition of 2%, um, that they'll still come with the message of how important it is that allies, you know, meet their Wales commitment, et cetera. But do, do you expect to see any kind of difference in the debate on burden sharing? And Constanza, maybe you want to jump in too. I think one question that lots of folks in the United States have is if we do get a green chancellor, what that debate is going to look like um, coming from Germany, given kind of uh, Annalena Baerbach's statements about that 2% metric. Well, look, I mean, it's an old line. Um, I think as one NATO ambassador said to me, if you like watching trains arriving on time, you'll like this NATO summit. It is intended to be boring. The communique is being written. There'll be lots of promises. Now it's true, Tony Blinken has come to NATO and said, we're open to talking about 2%, but the pressure to, for defense spending is real. The question is what kind of defense spending? Can it be more efficient? I mean, the EU has let Americans back into PESCO, which is important. I don't want to get into the details of PESCO. It's like I'm writing ready. about- I'm ready if you Yeah, I know you're ready for it, but it's like writing about the Vatican. I mean, but third countries were kept out of this EU military plan and now they're kind of being allowed in particularly for issues like military mo uh, military mobility which is quite important um there will be discussions of how much intelligence spending can go into two percent i mean the german fdp i think thinks you know wants three percent but they define it as development defense and something else i can't remember um but there are all kinds of ways to add up the money. And of course, the French want more defense spending. Everybody wants more defense spending. And the French wanted a more toward European defense. Um, and the big concern, um, it's not like the Albright days were, where, where the US said, what a horrible, stupid idea. The Blinken-Biden people are being much more open to it. 
but are very eager that there not be duplication and that European spending actually fit in terms of NATO capability needs. Um, so that's a big debate. And the debate to come to is also about, you know, it's common funding. I mean, how much the NATO budget itself can be used for common spending. The French hate this, other people like it. I mean, you know, and, and then there's simple questions. It's hard in a two and a half hour meeting with 30 people, but some of the things they have to decide are like, who's going to run the Kabul airport and who's going to protect it? I mean, you talk about Afghanistan. I mean, people are fleeing. Now, it reminds me so much, this is my age, of Vietnamization, right? Um, and, you know, let's leave it to the Vietnamese and let's see how long they can last. Um, I would, I didn't like the idea of pulling out altogether personally. You, you know, we have troops all over the place, another 3,000 troops there, fine, but that wasn't ever what Biden was going to do, even that I knew that the Europeans should have known that, but this felt like diktat to them, a pretense at um, consultation in the old style, and they're hoping this is an exception. Yeah. Do you want to add anything on, on, we're almost at time. I mean, I don't know if you want to have, like, say a quick word about kind of where that debate, where that discussion currently is in Berlin on, on the burden sharing side. Well, the, you know, the burden sharing debate is, is a, God, um, is a tedious one for everybody. Um, I'm speaking as a citizen of a country that is looking at the irony of having doubled its defense budget and still not meeting its defense, uh, its defense obligations, you know, under 2%, but then now seeing that the pandemic, because it's driving down GDP, you know, make, makes us look better. I mean, that that is just bizarre. And I, th I, mean, I think we all know that this metric is is unhelpful in so many ways. So I think we have to have a saner conversation on that. I'm frankly much more worried by by those in Germany, you know, who who think, um, you know, whose mindset is rooted in the 80s. And I'm thinking in particular of the parliamentary whip uh, in the Social Democratic Party who has a great deal of power. And I think is somewhat personally responsible for the departure from political life of the three sane uh, of uh, sort of defense policy experts in, in his party in the Bundestag. Um, that's not good. On the other hand, I think we've all seen, um, you know, we've seen a hardening of attitudes, including in my country. So I'm, I'm not all that worried that we can't find a measure of agreement um, on on what burden sharing should should usefully constitute. You know, again, I'm I'm much more worried about the strategic destabilization, you know, the opportunistic destabilization of Eurasia by Russian behavior with Chinese support. That is to me the core challenge that we need to address, and we need to address that across the board. And and questions like burden sharing, I think, are sort of intellectually secondary to it. Yeah. All right. We said there was a lot of ground to be covered across the summits. We covered a lot of ground in our discussion of the summits. We talked about nuclear sharing. We talked about Russia, burden sharing, Afghanistan, Turkey. I mean, we, we, we talked about China. We talked about a lot. And I think that, yeah, just really an incredibly rich conversation. So I want to thank both of you for joining us. Um, to thank Anne, who had to run uh, from the tarmac in Cornwall, 
and Susan Glasser who had to, to run off too. So this was just a fantastic discussion and thanks for joining us.